Save it. We ready, I boys? Miss you already. I'm ready. I'm, Are you? I'm ready. I've put a lot of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't ready. <laughs> Ooh, that's loud. Fucking Christ. Hell yeah, Jesus. man. Great way to start the episode out. Blowing our fucking eardrums out. Yeah. All right. So speaking of shit exploding, uh, Devin, I have a I have a question for you because Michelle and I were debating this. And I want to get your input on this. We were watching Star Wars uh, uh, Rogue One a couple okay. days ago. Okay. And when the Death Star hits Jetta and it blows up, from the Death Star, they see this massive mushroom cloud that looks like it's coming off of the planet. My question is, could a shockwave exist that's large enough that it actually displaces the atmosphere so that the explosion is still contained within the atmosphere? Or would that shear the atmosphere? But then again... We're also talking about Star Wars, so we're talking different kind of atmospheres than what's on Earth. All right, so let's think about. Let me let me break down some science. All right, what exactly is a shockwave? Not what does it do, but what constitutes? If you could hold a shockwave in your hand, what would you be holding? Overpressure. Overpressure, which means a lot of pressure in air. So you got a lot of air compressed down, right? Yeah. Okay, so if you. If you detonate something big enough to have a shockwave go around the world, it's not going to displace the... Um, it's not just going to disintegrate the atmosphere. And like, But what it may do is, especially right over the, the pressure cloud, because you can actually see this in, um, in nuclear blasts, is it may shoot a lot of air directly into space. That's what I was thinking, yeah, because, I mean, you got, like, a shockwave that's three-dimensional. It's not just on a 2D plane. It's not just going out away right. from the ground, like, uh, from the explosion on ground. It's also going up. It's a it's a bubble that's expanding. So exactly I, right. I, in theory, that bubble could expand large enough that it could displace the atmosphere and contain that entire blast within it. Okay, so not the entirety thing, because if, it, if it's big enough, because, you know, worlds around, it's, it is... It's going to not travel exactly across the surface of the planet. Well, I mean, it is, but it's not. But your higher peaks are going to be... Imagine taking a sphere and sticking it on the side... Or excuse me, half, half of a sphere and sticking it on the side of a ball, right? Yeah. You know, that flat plane at the edge of the sphere? That's going to be where it's going to blow out of the atmosphere if you do have it big enough. Okay. You know? Okay. You will have shockwaves bounce off the top of the atmosphere and come back, and it'll just keep going back. But it's just it's pressure is what it is. It's okay. focused down pressure. So you can get some escape, and you can actually see that. Um, it doesn't actually go into space with nuclear blasts, but you will see clouds form in the atmospheres um, as it keeps going on its way out, like all the way up, and I think all the way up into the stratosphere, truthfully. Um, you see those rings of clouds uh, um, around blasts? That's, that's what you're looking at. Okay. Well, speaking of shit going absolutely sideways, we're going to start our series on the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, yeah, a.k.a. the Argentinian Rugby Disaster. You guys excited? I'm Actually, so excited yeah. for people eating people. Dude, I'm so yeah. excited about this because... so. We've we've all done research on the prior episodes, like the as I guess the deep dives that we've done prior mm -hmm. to this, but this is the first time where we actually consciously sat down and we're like, let's hold this off until the new year. That way we can do. I did at least a month and a half of research on this episode alone, and I am so excited to bring this to you guys. This oh, yeah. the, the fascination with this story started many, many years ago when my grandmother introduced my brother and I to a movie called Alive, starring Ethan Hawke, which surprisingly... I was, was going to say that. Yeah, one ahead. of the movies where Ethan Hawke didn't yeah. die. No, well, he made surprise. it through the whole movie, which is yep. surprising. Oh, because a lot of fucking people didn't. Yeah, that's exactly, because there's a lot of chance for him to die. What's really fascinating about this is we've had a few people comment on our Instagram saying like, hey, you guys, uh, uh, what did you say in the last episode, Devin? We are highly intelligent bros. Yeah. Well-educated well bros. Well-educated well bros. Well, for the first time, yeah. I actually made, intelligence. I wrote a report. Like, oh. This has an abstract. Oh, Jesus. It has bodies. It has segments. 
Yeah, like, I, I really got into this, and I'm, I'm really hoping that you guys enjoy it as much as I did. And I'm, I'm not talking about, like, our fans. as I mean, I'm definitely talking about them, but I'm also talking about Tyler and Devin. I really hope you guys enjoy the story. It's an incredible, incredible story. And it all comes back, really, sort of, in a weird way, to how Devin and I met with rugby. Mm-hmm. So That's a true story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fun one. But instead of eating me, you just broke my hand. So... <laughs> I yeah. also held you up. And yes, dude. I thank you for that, man. You kept me from. You helped me not pass out in front of a bunch of dudes. I really, I respect that. I'm here but, for you, brother. Here for your reputation. Hey, thank you, man. And I, I mean, is it still part of my reputation if, like, I had you holding me up so I wouldn't pass out in front of people, and then I've openly talked about almost passing out in front of people since then? Yeah, I think so. I think it's cool to look cool, and I think it's cool to tell stories where you weren't cool. Well, it's, it's like rules at SOF. Rule number one, look cool. Rule number yeah. two, don't die. Rule number three is if you can't do rule number two, make sure you do rule number one. Yeah, man. Bingo. Cool. Fair enough. Well, without further ado, guys, let's get into the Argentinian rugby disaster. So Gang. the Uruguayan, Uruguayan, wow, Uruguayan, great start. <laughs> great start. I just talked about how much work I put into this, and I fucked up the first word. Anyway. The Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, which was later known as the Andes Flight Disaster, or the Miracle of the Andes, was a chartered flight that originated in Montevideo, Uruguay, bound for Santiago, Chile. On October 13th, 1972, which was a Friday the 13th, which we're going to get into later, while crossing the Andes, the inexperienced co-pilot for the Fairchild FH-227D plane who was the pilot flying mistakenly believed that they had reached Curaco, Chile, despite instrument readings and indicated otherwise. The aircraft began descending too early to reach Pudahel Airport and struck a mountain, initially shearing off both wings and the tail section. The remaining portion of the fuselage slid down the mountain about 725 meters. Uh, in American terms, that's roughly 2,379 feet before it struck ice and snow on a glacier. The flight was carrying 45 passengers and crew, including 19 members of the Old Christians Club Rugby Union team, along with their families, supporters, and friends. The wreck was located at an elevation of 3,570 meters, or again, around 11,710 feet in the remote Andes Mountains in far western Argentina, near the border of Chile. Three crew members and eight passengers died immediately, and several others soon died afterward due to the frigid temperatures and their serious injuries. Authorities immediately began searching for the aircraft and flew over the crash site several times during the next few days, but could not see the white fuselage against the snow. Search efforts were canceled after only eight days. During the next 72 days, however, 13 more passengers died. The remaining survivors reluctantly resorted to cannibalism. Fucking cannibalism. Nando Parado and Robert Canessa, who are really the heroes of the story, eventually ended up climbing 4,650 meters, or again, about 15,260 feet. Or, uh, sorry, they ended up climbing a about 15,260-foot mountain peak without gear, like nothing, and they ended up hiking for 10 days into Chile, where they finally managed to find support. On December 23rd, 1972, 72 days after the crash, we're talking 64 days after all searches were given up on them, 16 survivors were rescued. Fuck. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is such an incredible story of survival. Uh, after I mentioned Beck Weathers, I was like, you know, I really, I still want to get into the entire 1996 Mount Everest disaster. But this one has been with me for for decades, and I just I needed to bring this one out. This is such an incredible story, and like we mentioned before, there is even a major motion picture alive made about this. There were books written about it, and one of the survivors is actually still alive. He's still kicking. And last I heard, he gave a I want to say it was about five years ago. He actually gave another talk about this entire incident. And this is still still relevant. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's an so, amazing story of survival. It oh, really God, it is. really is. Yeah. My question, though, and what I really hope to unravel in this whole thing, is how can such a major catastrophe happen like this? 
Well, kind of simple. In 1972, you know, airplanes weren't really all that yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, it was in the fucking Andes. Like, people still die in the Andes today. There is another fantastic story called, uh, there's a documentary called, I want to say, Edge of the Void, where it's two climbers that damn near die in the Andes. And that was 20 years ago. Like, this is, it's just, it's not a place where people go to survive freely. No. Yet, 16 people still made it out. So to really get into the story, we need to start with where any story starts, really, which is the beginning. And where's the beginning of this story, you might ask? Okay, fucking don't then. Yeah, no, (laughs) I'm asking. (laughs) Didn't know I was supposed to answer them. Sorry, bro. My bad. I guess I should have uh, pointed at you or something. Where's the beginning of this story? Thank you for asking, Devin. I'm here for you, buddy. (laughs) No, the beginning of the story is... I, I really had to go back to when they boarded the flight for the very first time. So members of the the team on October 12th of the Old Christians Club Rugby Union on October 12th, 1972, boarded the aircraft that I mentioned earlier, the uh, Fairchild FH-227D, which, oh, man, I'm about to get into. Oh, and yeah. uh, they set off. Um, from Uruguay to their schedule. They were scheduled to play a match against the Old Boys Club, which was an English rugby team in Santiago, Chile. This was right. kind of like an exhibition match before the season really kicked off. The then club president, uh, Daniel Juan, he chartered a Uruguayan Air Force twin turbo Fairchild to fly the team over the Andes to Santiago. Like the aircraft carried... Air uh, no, it's, that's... That I did look into that, and from what I can tell, the Uruguayan Air Force was what they called like the Pilots Association. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, not like an actual like. No, not Air the actual Force, Air Force, like which gets weird Force. because the huh. the pilot was in the actual Air Force. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's weird. Okay. Um, Interesting. But it was not an actual Air Force flight. Right. Um. So the the aircraft itself carried forty passengers and five crew members. Uh, Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas, I think that's how you say his name, he was an experienced Air Force pilot who had a total of around 5,000 flying hours. He was accompanied by co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguiora. There were 10 extra seats on the plane, so the team members were then told, hey, you guys can call family or friends or whoever you would like to have come with you, and they essentially have a free spot on the flight. Which ended up becoming one of the worst fucking decisions that these poor guys ever made in their life. Ever. Oh my god, could you imagine living with that? Jesus. I couldn't. I hadn't even thought about that. I couldn't. And actually, Nando, who I mentioned earlier, he's done a lot of talks about living with that decision the rest of his life. Yeah. Well, uh, when someone canceled at the last minute... This this one this one gets rough and I'll expl- you'll understand why later. But Graziella Marlini bought the seat so she could attend her oldest daughter's wedding. It's just a random mm-hmm. woman. Yeah. Yeah. So again, on October twelfth, nineteen seventy two, the aircraft departed from Carrasco International Airport, but a storm over the Andes forced them to stop overnight in Mendoza, Argentina. Although there is a direct route from Mendoza to Santiago, which is roughly one hundred and twenty miles to the west. The high mountains require an altitude of about 25,000, 26,000 feet, which is extremely close to the maximum operational ceiling of the FH-227D's maximum flight level, which is roughly 28,000. So we're talking like between three to 2,000 feet lower than the max ceiling that this fair child can fly. Right. That... Accompanied with the fact that this FH-227 was fully loaded, this route would have required the pilot to be very careful and to calculate fuel consumption as well as weight to avoid the mountains. Instead, it was customary for this type of aircraft to fly a longer 370-mile, about 90-minute U-shaped route from Mendoza south to Mar-a-Lagu using the A-7 airway, which is now known as the UW-44, which I'm pretty sure our, our FAA fans out there will understand. But for us, that's just 
jet streams. Right. From there, the aircraft flew west, crossing the Planchong to the Curico radio beacon in Chile, and then north to Santiago. So its flight path, instead of going across the Andes, is you go south to a lower spot in the Andes, cross the Andes, and then go north. You guys tracking? <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Cool, because the pilot wasn't. <laughs> right? I shouldn't laugh at that. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> it's cool, man. Dark sense of humor. It happens. Well... On Friday the 13th, or again, October 13th, 1972, the weather was horrendous, and it did. It affected the flight. On that morning, conditions over the Andes had not improved, but changes were expected by early afternoon. The pilot waited and took off around 2.15-2.18 p.m., so in the afternoon, on Friday the 13th, from Mendoza. He flew south from Mendoza towards Mar-a-Lagu, towards the radio beacon there, at flight level, about 18,000 feet. So that's the plane is about 18,000 feet at this point. Right. The pilot, Ligura, radioed the Marlagu Airport with their position and told them they would reach about 8,251-foot-high Planchon Pass at around 321. The Planchon okay. Pass is the air traffic control handoff point from one side of the Andes to the other. Dude, we talked about this with Malaysia. We talked about this. Yep, we did. Yep, with controllers in Mendoza (laughs) transferring flight tracking duties over to Puya Hell Air Air Traffic Control in Santiago, Chile. So a lot of handoffs here. But once across the mountains in Chile, south of Curico, the aircraft was supposed to turn north and initiate descent into Puya Hell Airport in Santiago. Is that Curico or Curacao? Curico. Okay. Yeah, it's it's, a... C-U-R-I-C-O with the accent mark. So I'd, I'm not really sure. Maybe Kirko, Kirkow. I'm a dude in North Carolina. Do it you. Do you, boo. So that was, that was a lot of technical way of saying that this plane was supposed to fly towards the Andes, then turn south, head through a lower pass, clear that pass, and then head north. Okay. That didn't happen, though. No, clearly not. Unfortunately, the pilot had flown across the Andes, who, ha- sorry, had flown across the Andes around 20, 29 times previously, fucked up. There's really, that's the only way to put it. On this flight, he was training co-pilot Ligura, who was the pilot in command. As they flew through the Andes, clouds obscured the mountains. The aircraft was four years old and had around 792 airframe hours, which meant it had been used a lot. And the aircraft was regarded by some pilots as underpowered and had been nicknamed the lead sled, which is kind of ironic here in a moment. Yep. So given the cloud cover, the pilots were flying under instrument meteorological conditions. So that means they they could not see what they were doing. So instead of fly-by-eye, it was technically fly-by-wire at this point. Okay. And they were flying at an altitude of around 18,000 feet. They could not visually see their location at all. So that's, that's very important to remember. They cannot see their location. Some reports state that the pilot incorrectly estimated his position using dead reckoning, which, if I remember, look at my notes real quick, dead reckoning is, in navigation, it's, it's a term used for the process of calculating current position of some moving object by using a previously determined position. So let's say you're flying and you're supposed to pass, like, point A. Once you pass point A, you say, hey, I passed point A. And then that means now that you've passed point A, you turn and head north. You following? Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens, though, if that pilot says he crossed point A but didn't? Everybody's going to be looking for you at point A or after. Exactly. So the pilot was relying on his, his radio navigation. The aircraft's instrument displayed to the pilot a digital reading that said that he was roughly 37 to 43 miles away from Curico. Mm-hmm. Instead, at 3.21 p.m., shortly after transitioning the pass, Laguerre contacted Santiago, the airport there, and notified air traffic controllers that he expected to reach Curico in one minute. The flight time from the pass to Curico is normally 11 minutes, but only three minutes later than the pilot told Santiago they were passing Curico and the turning north point. He requested permission from air traffic control to descend. Uh. The controller in Santiago, unaware the flight was still over the Andes, 
authorized him to descend to 11,500 feet. That's really fucked up. Yes, it is. Later analysis okay. of their flight paths found the pilot had not only turned too early, but turned on a heading of 014 degrees when he should have actually turned at 030 degrees. Mm. If you remember so earlier... Wrong, he's also where he's supposed to be. Exactly. So if you remember earlier, I mentioned that the plane crash, plane crash was located around 11,700 feet. Yeah. And at this point, they're at, what was it, 10,000 feet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're too low. They're way too low. Way, yeah. So as the aircraft descended, severe turbulence, obviously from the fucking mountain peaks, tossed the aircraft all over the place. Nando Parado has said numerous times that he remembers hitting a downdraft, causing the plane to drop several hundred feet out of the clouds. So now they're going even lower immediately. As as, uh, Nando has stated many, many times, and this is a quote from him, that was probably the moment when the pilot saw the Black Ridge rising dead ahead, because I did. Oh, no. Could you imagine? Dude, okay, so downdrafts, a lot of people don't realize just how scary downdrafts are. Give it a Google. Like, 100%, just YouTube downdrafts, and you'll see it's, it's you can lose 700 to 1,000 feet a second Fuck. in a downdraft. Because the air's traveling straight down at 90 to 100 miles an hour. Sometimes even faster. Jesus. Yeah, it's it's yeah. horrendous. No, they're they're incredibly dangerous. Like, to the point that they have radars now that that detect downdrafts and some other weather phenomena that aren't, that aren't harmful to planes. But they consider all of it harmful to planes because they can't dis- distinguish between the two. So they're like, nope, don't even, don't even fuck with it. Mm. Downdrafts will take out planes. They kill planes. Turbulence. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. still there's still many modern aircraft accidents where that has been the cause of it. Pilots are coming into land, and as they're landing, a downdraft yep. hits and just slams them into the tarmac. It, it's it's tragic. It really is, and it's just 100%. mother nature saying you should not be fucking flying. So so this guy says he saw the the mountain coming in. Yes, and this is actually very oh. important. Nando Parado was on a window seat, and. There is some speculation that him being at the window actually saved his life. Really? Yes. And that was a last minute, you want to switch sides with me? I want to see the mountains. I've never seen them before type thing. One of the wow. other names I mentioned earlier, along with Nando Parado, was Robert Canessa, who had made this flight about three to four times at this point. And right. he later said in an interview that he thought the pilot had turned too soon. Now... This is important because Robert Canessa was in the aisle seat, essentially, so he couldn't see outside. But from what he recalls, he remembers everything he felt. As he said, and this is a quote, he began to climb until the plane felt nearly vertical and it began to stall and shake. Unfortunately, the aircraft was not gaining altitude. It had flattened out from its original descent and was now barreling straight towards a cliff. At yep. this point, the aircraft ground collision alarm started blaring, and all of the passengers lost their shit. I bet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can see mountains, man. Oh, yeah. The pilot then applied maximum power in an attempt to gain altitude. Witness accounts and evidence at the scene indicated that the plane struck the mountain either two or three times. Oof. Yeah. The pilot was able to bring the aircraft nose over the ridge, but at 334... A mere 13 minutes after he radioed and said that he was clear at the point to turn north over the Andes, the lower part of the tail cone may have clipped, and this is speculation because they're still not exactly sure of how the actual accident happened. Right. But what they assume is a lower part of the tail cone clipped a ridge at 13,800 feet. The next collision severed the right wing. Some evidence indicates that it was thrown back with such force that it tore off the vertical stabilizer and the tail cone. This is what I was referring to when I said that they're not 100% sure what happened. Right. When the tail cone was detached, it took with it the rear portion of the fuselage, including two rows of seats in the rear section of the passenger cabin, full of people and beer. Mm. The galley, baggage hold, vertical stabilizer, and horizontal stabilizers were all ripped from the aircraft, leaving a gaping hole near the rear of the fuselage. In total... Three passengers, the navigator, and the steward were lost immediately from the tail section. Shit. 
The aircraft continued forward and upward another 660 feet, or roughly 200 meters, for a few more seconds, when the left wing then struck an outcropping at around 4,400 feet, tearing off the wing. One of the propellers sliced through the fuselage, as the wing it was attached to was severed. Two more passengers then fell out of the open of the rear fuselage. Gone. The front portion of the fuselage flew straight through the air before sliding down the steep slope at roughly 220 miles per hour, essentially Jeez. becoming a high-speed toboggan for about 3,000, or sorry, 2,379 feet before colliding with the snowbank. The impact against the snowbank crushed the cockpit all the way to the bulkhead, and the two pilots inside were killed. The official investigation concluded that the crash was caused by what they call a controlled flight in terrain, or pilot error. The plane fuselage then came to rest on a glacier at an elevation of around 11,710 feet in the Mendoza province, in an area called the Mar-a-Lago Department. The unnamed glacier, later named Glacier de las Lagrimas, or Glacier of Tears, is between Cerro Sosnado, Sosnado, I, sorry, there's a lot of Spanish here and I don't speak it. And it was about 4,000 or about 14,000 feet high. Um, and it was, sorry, it was straddling the remote mountainous border between Chile and Argentina. It is south of a 15,000 foot high cerro and the mountain they later climbed in which Nando Prada named after his father. The aircraft was 50 miles east of its planned route. Where this really becomes pertinent is the I, I'm, I'm sorry I just misspoke both pilots were not killed instantly the the actual pilot was killed instantly the co-pilot survived somehow barely um, so he was trapped in the cockpit right he was like, yes he was like because like the nose compressed like, I, I had he, this book when I was a kid <laughs> oh yeah so I remember reading about this I remember seeing like the alive movie but yeah, it was, he was like compressed in the cockpit. Yeah, he was. Oh, God. Uh, and unfortunately, Jesus. he was just, he was alive just long enough to fuck everything up. I mean, absolutely everything. But we'll get into that to a second. Yeah, he'd done enough as is. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, yeah. RIP. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. Rest in peace. But again, this was all 100% pilot error. So, of the 45 people on the aircraft, Three passengers and two crew members in the tail sections were killed immediately. That was Lieutenant Ramon Saul Martinez, Orvito Ramirez, who was the plane steward, Gaston Castmiali, Alejo Honui, I think is how you say that, and Guido Magri. A few seconds later, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valeta fell out of the rear fuselage. Valeta survived his fall, but stumbled down the snow glacier, fell into deep snow, and was asphyxiated, or asphyxiated. His no, body was found shit. by fellow passengers on December 14th. Literally two months no. in the snow. after the initial. Could you imagine, not only did your plane just crash, but you're still strapped into your seat like you're told to, and instead of surviving, you slide down the bank of a mountain, end up buried in snow, you can't get out, and you die that way? Oh, my God. That's like a worse... That, I love skiing. Like That's one of my favorite things. But every year you hear about someone falling in a tree wells, which people don't know what a tree well is. When the snow falls, it doesn't fall on the backside of the tree because right. obviously the tree protects it, right? So there's just like this hole there. Well, that's called a tree well. Well, that can be up to like two to three feet deep. Right. And people fall into those face first, and then they can't get out because you can't grab on anything and whatnot, and they die. Oh, Not of starvation, God. but they get asphyxiated. And that yeah, is man. every year you hear about it. I, I'm on a, on a local mountain in uh, Idaho. I, got, I like a dad when he was out with his family died that way, and that terrifies me. It terrifies me that that's how you know someone could die. So yeah, no, that I, Mother Nature is a is a scary a cruel, thing, man. Cruel bitch. She's a fickle bitch, that's for sure. Yeah, that's dude. <laughs> not only do you survive the initial crash. But then you're riding this lead sled. Then you get ejected from it. Still strapped to your seat. And I'm, I imagine if you're still strapped in the seat, you go face first in the snow. Yep. So what was that like? Could you imagine that guy's last minutes? Oh my god, it's fucking terrifying. 
my god, it's miserable. Just buried in the snow, can't breathe, can't see anything, strapped no. to your seat, just dying. I'm good. No. Woo! I, I really can't heavy. think of much worse ways to go. Yeah, no. I, I really no. can't. That's terrifying. Before we go any further into the story, I feel like it would be remiss of myself if I did not go into this aircraft just a little bit. So the the aircraft that they were flying on, as I've said a couple times now, was the Fairchild FH-227. This plane was originally developed, I want to say, in 1962. Where are my notes on this thing real quick? Yes. Originally designed in 1950 and built in 1962. This is where mm. things get really interesting, at least to myself. Mm. 78 total FH-227s were built, and 23 of them crashed. Fuck. Yeah. Jesus. That's a horrible track record. And if, if you feel so inclined, hop on Wikipedia and just search for Fairchild F-27 or... Uh, 227 or FH-227 and you can see what they call the notable accidents. I started going down this list and of 23 accidents on here every single one of them had fatalities of 70% or higher. Wow. What gets extremely interesting at least to me is this accident that we're talking about today and next week still occurred on Friday the 13th October 1972. Earlier that year, on March 3rd, 1972, Mohawk Airlines Flight 405, which again was a FH-227, crashed into a house in Albany, New York, on approach to Albany County Airport. The crew had difficulty getting the cruise lock to disengage on one of the engines, which essentially meant that the autopilot was still pushing one of the engines. While the crew attempted to deal with the problem, the aircraft crashed short of the airfield, killing 16 of the 48 in the aircraft and one person on the ground. The lone surviving crew member was a stewardess. It's high strange in this time because I love this shit. Right. On Friday, October 13, 1972, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 that we are talking about right now was carrying 45 people and 16 people survived. One of the first deaths was the steward. That shit's oh. weird. Yeah. 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 That shit is extremely weird. So mm. now we understand that this was, I personally feel, a combination of the pilots fucking up, which, to be fair, happens. Humans right. make mistakes. And I definitely have a feeling that the aircraft had something to do with it. Yeah, I get well, if, you're, if your aircraft's going to be poor performing, which clearly it is, not responsive, which clearly it is, and have massive design flaws, which clearly it did, and you, have, and you just throw in human error, a touch of human error in there, you're going you're gonna to have a wreck. You're going to have a bad day. Especially with how this aircraft broke up, which is going to be extremely instrumental. As I mentioned in, in earlier at the beginning of this, they couldn't see the fuselage. If there would have been more plane attached, it would have had a larger surface area and could have been. I'm not saying it would have been, but it could have been spotted easier if the plane would have stayed intact. Mm. Or Again, controller. the plane slammed into a mountain at around 200 miles an hour. Mm. Right. Not a lot of aircraft could survive that to begin with. I understand that. But I'm still choosing to say that this shit aircraft was a part of it. So anyway, back to the initial crash. As I mentioned earlier, the few people that died immediately, there's more. At least four died from the impact of the fuselage hitting the snowbank, which ripped the remaining seats from their anchors and hurled them to the front of the plane. Oof. Think about that. You are once in the back of the plane, and within a split second, you are now in the front of the plane. Which you two things be. will happen at that point. One you're going to go flying to the front and catch those injuries. And two, if you were in the front, you were now also part of the back. Everything compressed. Huh. Team physician Dr. Francisco Nicola and his wife, Esther Nicola, who he asked last minute to take one of the empty flights or seats on the flight, 
Eugenia Parado, and Fernando Vasquez, who are medical students, all died. Pilot Ferradas died instantly when the nose gear compressed the instrument panel against his chest, forcing his head out the window. The co-pilot Lagura was critically injured and trapped in the crushed cockpit. He asked one of the passengers, literally asked one of the passengers to find his pistol and shoot him. But the passenger declined. Ow! Okay. Yeah. 33 remained alive, although many were seriously or critically injured, with wounds including broken legs, which had resulted from the aircraft seats collapsing towards them as a luggage partition of the cabin became the front seats. Canessa and Gustavo Zerbino, both second-year medical students, acted quickly to assess the severity of people's wounds and treat those they could help most. Nando Parado had a skull fracture that was so bad he remained in a coma for three days. Enrique Platero had a piece of metal stuck in his abdomen that, when removed, brought a few inches of intestine with it, but he immediately Ugh. began helping others. What? Yeah. That's incredible. Both Dude. of Arturo Nogueira's legs were broken in several places. None of the passengers with compound fractures would survive. No, okay. So a lot of people don't understand what a compound fracture is. I'm going to I'm going to ask a couple questions right here. First off, uh, a compound fracture is when you break a bone. So it's, uh, you break a bone and then the bone exits the skin. That's a compound fracture, which for all those who, who who have ever broken bones, typically they're inside your skin. They reset them, and you're good to go a lot of times. It's a fairly simple-ish procedure, depending on what you did. Um, compound fractures is a big deal because once your bones are exposed to air, even if you put them back in, now you've got all that material that was in the air, all the germs, are now directly in your bone and bone marrow. You know, oh, and yeah. if you set, happen to set it right, you're going to have a really hard time living, much less in these conditions. But I got a question for you guys. Go. Um, let's say you're in the co-pilot's position. You just had your, your, your chest crushed. And this is, this is tough, man. This is a tough, you know, you know, a tough time. Do you and, – and, or not even. Not even. Your boy just, just, just got, got crushed like that. And he said, hey, man, hand me the gun. Like, it's time. Like, I'm, I know I'm going to die. You know I'm going to die. Just let me die on my own terms. Do, would you hand the gun over? Fuck If no. you know he's gonna die. Nope. Wouldn't do it? I, and again, I've never been in this situation, so I sure, really don't know I. what I would do, but I yeah. think the thought process I would have at this point is we are all in, in this situation together. Regardless of who caused it, we are all here dealing with the same thing together. If you can talk, you might be able to help. I personally... Two things. One, you could potentially help. You know how to use the instruments. You know how to use the radio if it's still working. You know where we are. You understand the navigation. I'm just a passenger. You can help. Two, okay, okay. you just fucking did this to us. You don't get the easy way out. Good point. I just pulled a piece of metal out of my homie that took part of his intestines out, and you're asking right. me to shoot you in the head? Fuck you very much. Right. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know, now, man. If you see that he's stuck there, he's trapped in the fuselage. Like you can't move him. Start hitting buttons. You try to get on that radio. Something. Oh, Something. I don't know. That's now, crazy. Do you guys remember when I said that the co-pilot? When I retracted my statement and said the co-pilot didn't die instantly, but he stayed long enough just to fuck shit up. Yeah. Yeah. The co-pilot kept saying one thing. Over and over and over again. We passed Kiriko. We passed Kiriko. Like, how did this happen? We passed Kiriko. He like so 100% thought... Mm. Yeah, he 100% thought they hit the turning point before they turned north. Okay, real quick. I'm just going to paint a picture for you, all right? Imagine you're flying on a plane across extremely jagged mountains, right? Right. You clear those mountains, and then you turn north, and you're flying north just to the left of these mountains pretty easy day right right instead they turn north in the middle of the mountains and we're flying instead of to the left of them straight up the middle of them oh. now when the co-pilot kept saying we passed this point we passed this point 
the remaining survivors were like, okay, if we pass that point, that means we crossed the Andes. We're good. Or we're right on the left edge of the Andes, which means if we head west relatively soon, we'll be good to go. Instead, they were smack dab in the middle of the Andes. So this co-pilot's last words ended up fucking over every one of the survivors who thought they were where they weren't. Mm. Oh, yeah. Like I said, stayed alive just long enough to fuck everything up. Right. So, of course, after the plane went down and they lost it on radar, they started a search and rescue. The Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service, or SARS, was notified within the hour that the flight was missing. Four planes searched that afternoon until dark. The news of the missing flight reached Uruguayan media at roughly 6 p.m., so about three hours after the plane had crashed. Officers of the Chilean SARS listened to the radio transmissions and concluded the aircraft had come down in one of the most remote and inaccessible areas of the Andes. They called on the Andes Rescue Group of Chile, or the CSA, Unknown to the people on the board of the, or the rescuers, the flight had crashed about 13 miles from an abandoned hotel called Hotel Termas, which used to be a resort and hot springs that would have provided limited shelter. On no. the second, yes. Yeah. That, that's how these things always happen. You're always, like, right on the precipice of, like, yeah. being, of, of, of being good to go or better to go. And it comes to find out that you went the opposite direction. You chose three directions and all three were wrong. And again, this is all going to come into play later. Because like I said, they thought they were at one point. If they would have known actually where they were, they would have known about this resort. And they could have made the 13-mile journey to this resort. That's it. Instead, we'll get to what actually happened. On the second day of the search and rescue, 11 aircraft from Argentina... Chile and Uruguay searched for the down flight. The search area included their location and a few aircraft flew near the crash site. One aircraft even flew directly over the crash site. The survivors tried to use lipstick recovered from the luggage to write SOS on the roof of the aircraft, but they quit after they realized that they lacked enough lipstick to even make the letters visible from the air. Wow. They saw three aircraft fly overhead, but were unable to attract their attention, and none of the aircraft crews spotted the white fuselage against the snow. The harsh conditions gave searchers little hope they would find anyone alive. Ha, they said the thing, alive. Hmm. Search efforts were canceled after eight days. On October 21st, after searching a total of 142 hours and 30 minutes, the searchers concluded that there was no hope and terminated the search. At this point, the searchers, the rescuers, said no one could have survived this. Of course they did. They hoped to find the bodies in the summer depending on when the snow melted. That's, to me, just ridiculous. Well, yes and no. I, I don't, I agree. I, I kind of, I, I more agree with you. I 100% more agree with you. They could, they should have kept looking. 100%. If you can't find a crash site, then you're, you're not done. But, at the same time, this is dead winter of, you know, 13,000 feet. For, for those who don't know just how high that is, like, all your best Colorado ski mountains are up there. You know, there's a reason that the ski mountains are up there because the snow never melts because it never gets above that, that temperature. The only place in Big Hawaii you, you can you can, uh, you can can ski is, uh, what is it, Monoakoke or something like that? Um, and that's at 13,000 feet. You know, so even in Hawaii, which is notoriously warm, at that height, they get snow every year. So, and it, depending on the weather that year, they're probably like, these guys froze to death. They're 100% dead. But at the same time, you keep searching until you find something. Until you recover something. Something, yeah. You've got to verify because mm. if you don't verify, then this happens. Yep. Yeah. So, that brings us to the first week after the accident and the reason i'm doing the first week is because on week two shit hits the fan hell yeah of epic proportions so during the first night 
of the crash. We're talking the night of October 13th, 1972. Five more people died. That included the co-pilot, who finally succumbed to his injuries, Francisco Abal, Graziella Marini, Felipe Macurian, and I'm so sorry I'm butchering these names. I really am. And Julio Martinez Lamas. Gone. The passengers removed the broken seats and other debris from the aircraft and fashioned a crude shelter. The 27 people that were still alive crammed themselves into the broken fuselage in a space of about 3 meters. Which, if you remember, Ted Kaczynski was actually living in a place bigger than this. Shit. Yeah. Oh my god, you are right. He was. Yeah. He was living in a 10 square meter hut, I want to say. They were living in an area, or sorry, they were surviving in an area that was 8 feet by 9 feet. That's it. Jesus Christ. To try to keep out some of the cold, they used the luggage, seats, and snow to close off the open end of the fuselage. They improvised in other ways as well. Fido Strauch devised a way to obtain water in freezing conditions by using sheet metal from under the seats and placing snow on it. The solar collector melted snow, which dripped into empty wine bottles. To prevent snow blind, or blindness, he improvised sunglasses using the sun visors in the pilot's cabin, wire, and a bra strap. They removed the seat covers, which were partially made of wool, and actually had to use those to try to keep warm. They used the seat cushions as snowshoes. Marcelo Perez, captain of the rugby team, assumed leadership, which a good captain would. Yeah. Unlike the captain of the App State rugby team, who ended up taking the money that everyone gave for dues and went to Myrtle Beach, but that's neither here nor there. Very salty. Uh, Nando Parado, who, if you remember, had a severe skull fracture and was in a coma for three days, mm. ended up waking up from his, uh, his coma. He miraculously came to, only to learn that his 19-year-old sister, Susanna Parado, who he had invited earlier the day before to fly on a plane that had empty seats, was severely injured. He attempted to keep her alive without success. During the eighth day, she succumbed to her injuries. The remaining 27 faced severe difficulties surviving the nights when temperatures dropped to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. For our European listeners, that's negative 30 degrees Celsius. Now... The reason I decided to actually put the temperature in here was because if you remember on the episode where we talked about people that just won't die, Beck Weathers was up in the death zone on Everest, where it was reaching temperatures of around the same degree Fahrenheit, around 15 to 30 degrees, depending on the wind, under zero. The difference is Beck Weathers was wearing equipment that was suited for those altitudes. These guys just left from fucking Uruguay. They weren't wearing Himalayan yeah, suits. Yeah, they weren't ready for it. Fuck, they were I mean, not. You can get, you can get uh, uh, what do they call altitude sickness just by riding a, uh, like driving up to a, a ski mountain and and being up there for a minute, you know? You absolutely can get altitude sickness. Now imagine flying into that. You know? You're not acclimated. You don't have the clothes. You have your rugby gear. You know, so great. You got short shorts and really tight T-shirts. Well, this was also 1972. So where they got lucky was the fact that flying in an airline was still considered class. So they were wearing, most of them had on some kind of suit jacket, but it was more along the lines of a sport coat and slacks. So they were at least wearing long pants and long sleeves. Just still, again, nowhere near what they should have had to be at that altitude and in that kind of weather. So, all had lived near the sea. Most of the team members had never seen snow before, and none had ever experienced a high altitude like this. The survivors lacked medical supplies, cold weather clothing, and equipment or food. They had nothing and only had three pairs of sunglasses among the whole 27 remaining to prevent snow blindness. Fuck. The survivors ended up finding a small transistor radio jammed between seats of the aircraft, and Roy Harley, who was just a random member of the team, who had a radio that's 
all the experience he had, he just owned a radio, was basically tasked to improvise and make the radio work. And he did. He ended up using a very long antenna that was made from electrical wires that he ripped out of the plane. In doing this, he was actually able to hear what they were saying on the radio about them. No. On day eight, he heard the news, along with everyone else, that the search was canceled. Mm. And that was it. God. Nobody was coming from them. God. Paul, Pierce Paul Reed wrote a book, the book called Alive, the one that Tyler mentioned, which was yeah. later adapted into the, the movie. And in that book, he describes the moment after this discovery. And this is from the book. The others who had clustered around Roy, upon hearing the news, began to sob and pray, all except Fernando, who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo Nikolic came out of the aircraft and, seeing their faces, knew what they had heard. He climbed through the hole in the wall of suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel, and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey, boys, he shouted. There's some good news. We just heard on the radio. They called off the search. Not a good time for, uh, this is me right here, not a good time for sarcasm. Back to the, the quote from the book. Inside the crowded aircraft, there was silence. As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that good news? Pius shouted angry at Nikolic. Because it means, he said, that we're going to get out of here on our own. The courage Shit. of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. Flood. What a guy. Like, what a dude. He's like, all right, I guess we're doing this ourselves. No one's coming. It's up to us. Yeah, fuck it. We'll do it live. Dude, yeah, that's it, man. That's what he <laughs> wow. said. And you're like, oh, shit. Here we go. Yeah, it's... Oh, wow. man. To this point, I could not imagine. Let, let's, let's break down everything that's happened up to this point. You... We're flying to do an exhibition game against some Brits, just a random game. You're having fun. You right. find out that there are empty seats, and you can bring family on board. Mm. Then you take off. You're flying. You're having a good time on the plane, and then you slam into the mountain at 200 miles per hour. If you were lucky enough to survive up to this point, now you are, you've been alive long enough to know that you have no resources no supplies. Right. Potentially some of your family has died. At least some of your very close friends, your teammates have died. And now the search has been called off. Fuck. Yeah. So, I enjoy true crime. I know Tyler does too. And hopefully we're getting Devin into it. I, okay, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm converting slowly. I am also about... The fucked upness of true crime. And what basically goes into it, because you can watch a documentary, let's say about Jeffrey Dahmer, where they're like, yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer killed people and ate them. And you're like, oh, that's horrible. Until you find out that uh, he killed people by drilling holes into their heads and filling those holes with bleach so that he could turn them into sex slaves. And when they inevitably died from that, he then killed them and then prepared their flesh and would eat them in front of an altar that contained their different bones and visceral while masturbating whoa that's why i love true crime it's actually really fucked up really fucked up why did i just bring that up because we're about to get into a really really hard subject um Mm -hmm. It's. I have put so much research into this next subject, and I've learned a lot. But for our listeners, maybe, that are just you know hanging out and hearing us talk about crazy shit, who who didn't initially make the dive into looking into this stuff because they wanted to, mm-hmm. this is your warning. This is when we start talking about cannibalism. Yeah, buddy. Yes. And uh, I think what makes this, to me, 
extremely difficult to talk about, is this just isn't cannibalism. You gotta remember that everybody on this flight was either a teammate or a family member. Yep. So yeah, good think, point. Fuck, if you will, Jesus. what it would take. Tyler, you have two sisters and a brother, right? Uh, two sisters, a stepsister, and a stepbrother. Okay, I've got Bob. God. <laughs> Devin, <laughs> yeah, Devin's got, got his boy Caleb, who's who really should be his brother, like legal. Oh, yeah. Could you imagine? No. <laughs> Bob's over here nodding. He's just like straight up, like, yeah, I'd fucking eat you. But could you, you know, imagine? Without, without, it would, it would fuck me up if I didn't have previous consent. Like, if he was dying, he looked at me, he's like, eh, it's cool, dude. Like, all right, maybe. But like, if he hadn't, dude, yeah, man, oof, big oof. It's actually really interesting that you mentioned that because one of the guys actually does give permission. What a hero, you know? Right. So, I would give permission. If I was going to die, I'd be like, yeah, man, go ahead. Feast up, dog. What I found interesting about the cannibalism in this story as compared to, say, the Donner Party yeah. was in the Donner Party, they just went after it. The, the people that right. were barely hanging on to life were like, there's, there's meat on those bones. Let's fucking eat them. Um, in a couple instances, and this is, this is speculated, but in a couple instances – they believe that members were actually killed because they were close to death already and then consumed. You have to remember what the national religion is of South America. It's Catholicism. Ain't Mormon. So we have a bunch of devout Catholics that are like, dude, we we can't fucking do this. Like yeah. we can't, but they're dying. They are fucking dying. So without further ado, cannibalism. So, the survivors had extremely little food. Between 27 people, they had eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, and a tin of almonds, a few dates, which I don't know how many that is, but if you just literally say a few, can't be many, candles, which try not to eat those, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. So I guess that's plus right there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well... Yeah, I need some need some wine. What didn't you say there was beer in the back too? I think it came out like beer, but I meant to say gear. Um, gear, okay. Yeah, okay. that okay. was kind of like okay. a slur while I was drinking my beer. No, oh. gear, not beer. <laughs> Sorry, okay. I, I was wondering if it came out that way. I, I was hoping it wouldn't get addressed, but yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> no, gear was ripped out of the back of it. Here for you. Yep. Yeah. So during the days following the crash, they had divided this into very small amounts to make their meager supply last as long as possible. Like Parado, who we're going to mention a lot in this story, yeah. literally only ate a single chocolate-covered peanut over three days. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, this, this guy, I wish I could have met him. Wish I could have met him. Who, as much as I don't agree with the casting of having John Malkovich play a Central American... John Malkovich did a fantastic job of actually making you feel like he was legitimately there, if that makes sense. He did a great right. job in that in the movie Alive. Um, but I digress. Even with a strict rationing, their food stock dwindled quickly because there was shit there. There was no nutritional vegetate or sorry, no nutritional value or natural vegetation. Why the fuck did I write that? Like that's just hard to read. <laughs> there was yeah, no nutritional value. Or natural vegetation. And there were no animals, fucking obviously, on either the glacier or the nearby snow-covered mountains. It's a glacier. Right? By the way, there aren't even that many today. But, yeah, there's nothing there, man. It's nothing but rock and ice. Rock and ice, bro. And a sun. That's it. That doesn't warm you up. It blinds you, but it won't warm you. So with the, the lack of food or resources, the food ran out after only a week. Mm. And the group yeah. tried to eat parts of the airplane. I mean, like the cotton inside the seats and the leather and tried to eat shoes and shit. But they realized that they were only getting sicker from eating these elements. Well, yeah, that would make sense. As I mentioned earlier, they found out that the search was called off. Right. Knowing that the rescue efforts had been called off and faced with starvation and death, 
those still alive agreed that should they die, the others might consume their bodies in order to live. With no choice, the survivors ate bodies of their dead friends. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Survivor Roberto Canessa described the decision to eat the pilots and their dead friends and family members. They went after the pilots first, which I would have done too. They didn't fucking know them. And this is, <laughs> yeah, this is from Robert yeah. Canessa. Okay. Our common goal was to survive, but what we lacked was food. We had long since run out of the meager pickings we'd found on the plane, and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we would become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates, preserved outside in the snow and ice, contained vital, life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. We wouldn't... We wondered whether we were going mad even to contemplate such a thing. How we turned into brute savages? Or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing the limits of our own fear. The group survived by collectively deciding to eat flesh from the bodies of their dead comrades. This decision was not taken lightly, as most of the dead were classmates, close friends, or relatives. Canessa used broken glass from the aircraft windshield as a cutting tool. He set the example by swallowing the first matchstick size of, of stripped, frozen flesh. Several others did the same later on. The next day, more survivors ate the meat offered to them, but a few refused or could not keep it down. In his memoir, Nanda Paranda wrote about this decision. At high altitude, the body's caloric needs are astronomical. We were starving in earnest with no hope of finding food, but our hunger soon grows so voracious that, it's, that it, we searched anyway, again and again. We scour the fuselage in search of crumbs and morsels. We tried to eat strips of leather from the torn pieces of luggage, though we knew that the chemicals they'd be treated with would do us more harm than good. We ripped open seat cushions hoping to find straw, but found only inedible upholstery foam. Again and again, I came to the same conclusion. Unless we wanted to eat the clothes we were wearing, there was nothing here but aluminum, plastic, ice, and rock. Mm. Parado protected the corpses of his sister and his mother, and they were never eaten. They dried the meat in the sun, which made it more palatable. They were initially so revolted by the experience that they could only eat skin, muscle, and fat. When the supply of fesh, or flesh was diminished, they also ate hearts, lungs, and even brains. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, all of the passengers were Roman Catholic. Some feared eternal damnation. According yeah. to Reed, some rationalized the act of neurotic cannibalism, or sorry, necrotic cannibalism as equivalent to the Eucharist, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, under the appearance of bread and wine. Others justified it according to a Bible verse found in John 15, 13, which states, No man hath greater love than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Some initially had reservations, though, after realizing that it was their only means of staying alive. They said it again. They changed their minds a few days later. Javier Methel and his wife Liliana, the only surviving female passenger, were the last survivors to eat human flesh. She had strong religious convictions and only reluctantly agreed to partake of the flesh after she was told to view it as a kind of holy communion. Regardless of the decisions that brought them to the point of consuming their teammates, family, and loved ones. It has been stated that it was impossible to sleep that night due to the uncontrollable sobbing of every member that was alive because of this decision. And that is where I'm going to leave this story off until next episode. Ooh, you got me. Fuck, man. <laughs> Savage. Oh, yeah. This is an incredible story. I love it. It's just something about people surviving and just in unforeseeable consequences where no one should ever make it out is incredible so the story does have a happy ending keep that in mind there is a glimmer of hope at the end it's just to get there it's just a long Ooh. journey yeah. well with that Whoa. said guys um i'm going to recommend that everybody seriously go on youtube right now after listening to this 
and check out Aussie Man Reviews because he will completely take your mind off the fact that we just got done talking about eating people. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, you're not wrong. I love Aussie Man Reviews. He's a great guy. He's, He's a great guy. Hysterical. And with He's that crazy. said, guys, I believe this episode has actually gone a little long. But uh, 2021, okay. stay true, stay you. Uh, it's a new year. Let's make something out of it. Every one of you. And, and thank everybody for coming out and listening to us rant for week upon week. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. He ain't dead. He's just a mile ahead. Just a lap ahead. Hell yeah. Praise hell, praise hell, brother. Bye.